Thank you, Tony and Amy. Take your Bibles and turn with me today back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, as we close out today the letters to the churches, talking this morning on the subject matter, the curse of complacency. You know, I, uh, I thought with what all is going on in the world, how interesting that we are in a study on Wednesday nights of the book of Daniel and on Sunday mornings in Revelation. Now, uh, folks, for all you people out there who are determined the church is going to go through the tribulation, uh, y'all need to get together and decide who's going to finish this series if we're raptured out of here before. Amen? Uh, you just can't help, obviously we don't know the timetable, uh, you just can't help but think uh, as you look at the world climate that things are close. Uh, Zephaniah 2.4 says that uh, Gaza will be deserted and destroyed, whereas Israel today moving their uh, ground troops, uh, 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 where are they moving them today? They're moving them along the border between Israel and Gaza. And uh, all these peace talks going on, I would, I would assume, my opinion, that uh, in these peace talks that some kind of deal is going to be struck so there will be a Palestinian state uh, in exchange for the opportunity for Israel to rebuild the temple. And uh, just wait for things like that to uh, happen. But anyway, you look at the world situation today, and again, we don't know God's timetable, but it uh, certainly appears that things in the world are very delicate. Uh, I don't know of any single thing that prevents uh, the rapture of the church from occurring even today. And so the message of the scripture is be ready because if you're ready, it doesn't matter when it happens, right? You're ready. But uh, how interesting that we're in this series and uh, after the holidays we'll pick up beginning in chapter 6 talking about events of the tribulation, the seals being broken, trumpets being blown, and the bowls of wrath being poured out. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, as I told you, over the Christmas holidays, I didn't really want to be pouring out the bowls of wrath uh, during the holiday season. But anyway, uh, we'll try to cover chapters 4 and 5 uh, before Christmas. Jesus said to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. <clears throat> so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prosper, prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. 
The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, as we close out this morning the letters to the seven churches, we do so with that full knowledge of your great love for the church. Jesus said he'd build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And with each letter we've seen that closing invitation that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We're encouraged by the fact, Lord, that you desire to do business with your people. And we see things that grieve your heart. And then we see things that you greatly desire of us. Father, I pray that we would be repentant of those things that grieve your heart. That we would be strong in these days. That we would be ready to meet the bridegroom whenever that day occurs. Lord, until then, you've called us to be salt and light in this culture. To be ambassadors for Christ. You've given a great work for the church to do. But Lord, if we're going to carry out that work, we've got to be theologically pure, ethically and morally pure. We've got to keep the fire burning hot for our faith in the Lord Jesus and love for Him. We've got to address sin and apathy and complacency in our lives. And so Father, through these letters, I pray that you would challenge us to address each of these issues. Lord, you know us perfectly. And I thank you that you know us perfectly. Just as you knew each one of these congregations in chapters 2 and 3 perfectly. God, may you work in us that we might be found faithful. And I pray for even one here today who is not ready to meet you. That your spirit would be knocking on his or her heart's door. That even perhaps today that they would open their heart to faith in Christ and be born again. Just work in the hearts of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've mentioned to you, these, this uh, letter that we look at today closes out this section in the book of Revelation that deals with the letters to the seven churches. Now, going back to the outline that we were given in chapter 1, John was told to write the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that shall be. Now, most scholars would say the letters to the churches describe the things that are. And then beginning in chapter 4, we will begin looking at the things that shall be. And that means that most of the book of Revelation uh, deals with future events. Now, As we've repeatedly seen, these letters show us what is right and wrong in the church. They reveal things to us that we must cling to and things that we must repent of. They give us the state of the church. Now today I want us to learn from the example of Laodicea. And what we're going to see and what we're going to learn is that a church has to be wholehearted in its devotion. 
There is no place for complacency in God's kingdom. Now this letter is the hardest hitting of all of them. There's no way to soften it, nor would we want to. You see, sometimes the word of God takes us to the woodshed and we simply need to take the punishment or the discipline and learn from it. Now you'll notice there's nothing good about their condition. The spirit of the letter is one of stern judgment. And you'll notice what great love is also in it. For Jesus wants them to repent and return to him while there is still time. Now the letter points out the sin of apathy, the sin of complacency. And the fact that God hates complacency in his church. It is a dreadful thing to have a knowledge of the truth and not care much about it one way or the other. Now this letter carries such a powerful message for the church today. Somebody has once said that today's society will die because it simply doesn't want to be bothered. The great sin of this age is that we don't seem to care. I think of a dialogue that occurred between Elaine and her boyfriend in a particular episode of Seinfeld. Elaine asked, do you believe in God? And the boyfriend says, yes, I do. Elaine says, well, is it going to be a problem for you that if I don't believe in God and I'm not religious? The boyfriend says, no, that's not a problem for me at all. Well, how's that, Elaine asks. He says, well, it doesn't bother me. After all, I'm not the one going to hell. You are. (laughs) That's pretty much the sin of the church at Laodicea. So what? So what, whatever your condition is? I've got everything I want. I'm comfortable. I'm happy with where I am. I don't care about you or your condition. That's pretty much the sin uh, of the church there at Laodicea. So what that Christ has died for our sins? So what that he was buried and raised again on the third day? So what that he's coming again for his bride? So what that we have a great commission? Again, I'm comfortable with where I am. Well, I want you to notice the church here. It's felt that Archippus was the pastor of this church. Paul addresses him specifically in the fourth chapter uh, of the book of Colossians. Now, as Paul closes that letter, he admonishes Archippus to complete his ministry that is not yet finished. It's believed Archippus has grown complacent and lost his fire and the church has taken on his personality. Now Laodicea was a rich town. Like Charlotte, they were a banking center for the region. In fact, on several occasions, the Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero had cashed huge checks for Rome there at Laodicea. 
An earthquake destroyed the city in A.D. 60 and Rome uh, agreed to come in or offered to come in and help the Laodiceans rebuild their city and they said no, we don't need Rome, we don't need outside help, we're rich, we've got everything we need, we've got it covered. Well, on top of being a major banking center for Asia Minor, they also had a prosperous wool industry. They were known for a high-quality black wool. They were also known in the medical industry. They made a powder that you would add water to it and, and mix that powder into a paste. And that paste could be applied to the eye and it was a medicine for certain eye ailments and diseases. And so whether it was banking and commerce, the clothing industry, the medical industry, Laodicea seemed to have it all. They were pretty well satisfied with who they were and what they had. They were comfortable. Life was good for them. I want you to notice how the church is addressed. Jesus addresses the church as the amen, the faithful and true witness Christ is God's amen. He's the final and complete word from God, the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 1 says that in times past, God spoke in various ways through dreams and prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. If you reject Jesus Christ, there is no hope. There is no further word from God. People always want to wait around on some better offer to come along. There's not a better offer than what we have in Christ. He's the faithful and the true witness. He cannot lie. He will be faithful with what he tells you. If he makes a promise, you can count on it. If he threatens judgment, you can expect it. Now the church has not been faithful and true to its Lord but nonetheless Jesus has been faithful and true and one is reminded of course of 2 Timothy 2.13 where, where Paul says if we are faith, faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Isn't it nice to know that we serve a God who's faithful? I'm glad he's more faithful to me than I am to him. Now, also he addresses them as the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this church saw its sufficiency in its own power and wealth. And so this identification would have been a reminder to them that their trust was misplaced. Because wealth and prosperity and power can quickly disappear. Only Jesus Christ is worth our faith and trust. Only He is our true security because before creation He was and after creation He will be. He is eternal. Now look at the condemnation in verse 15. He says, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He mentions several things here in the condemnation of them. First of all, he mentions that they are lukewarm. There are several spiritual conditions that are possible for us. 
One condition is that we are spiritually cold to the things of God. We can be lost. We can be hardened to the things of God. That's the unspiritual man. The Bible says that the unspiritual man cannot even perceive the things of the Lord. In fact, to the, to the unspiritual man, the things of the Lord are actually foolishness. He gets up, goes about his life every day, and the Lord's not even on his radar. He's not even thinking about God's program or what God wants to do in his life and in the world. He's not even thinking in those categories, the unspiritual man. And then there's the hot or the fervent individual, the person who is growing in their relationship to Jesus Christ. They're plugged into what God's doing in their life and the world. That's the spiritual man. The spiritual man judges life and the world by the Word of God. He allows the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and continually transform his life more and more daily into the image of Christ. The spiritual man. And then there's the lukewarm man or the carnal man. This state refers to those who have manifested some interest in the things of God. At some point in the past, they may be professing believers, but their life shows no fruit of it. Their life really brings up some honest questions. They may have been touched by the gospel, but it's not really clear that they've ever been transformed by the gospel. They're like the soil that Jesus said seed falls into and it begins to grow and then the weeds and the thorns begin to grow up alongside of it and choke it out and Jesus says that's the deceitfulness of riches and all the cares and the worries of this life and that person's uh, faith is without any fruit. Identification with Christ, no fruit. Now I want to say throughout church history, nobody has been harder to reach with the gospel than that individual. Now the Laodiceans were a half-hearted bunch. It's as though the Laodiceans could not decide if they wanted to be a part of the world or a part of Jesus' kingdom. They were not fighting Jesus, but neither were they following Jesus. And Jesus says to them, I wish you would make up your mind. Either you're with me or you're not. Either you're going to follow me or you won't. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet do not do the things that I say? I wonder if Jesus could be saying that to somebody here this morning. When are you going to make up your mind? I want you to consider these statistics that I saw written about by Dr. James Merritt. He was the president in recent years of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and through some surveys and the published results of those surveys, he put this together. And, and he, he outlined everything in ascending order, starting with the smallest. But listen to what he says. Today, 10% of all church members cannot even be found. I would actually say that's probably a little bit low. 20% indicating surveys, they never pray. 30% 
Though they are on a church roll somewhere, they never attend church. 40% never give to any cause. 50% indicate Sunday morning rolls around and even if they do go to church, they never go to Sunday school. 60% say they never go back to church again on Sunday nights. 70% say they don't give to missions. 80% never go to, to prayer meeting or midweek Bible study. 90% say they never have family worship. And 95% of professing believers today say that never in their life, even one time, have they attempted to share their faith in Christ with anybody else so that that person might make a decision for Christ. Astounding statistics. Very disturbing. You know, I'm glad that Jesus didn't sort of love me and sort of not. Sort of go to the cross to save me and sort of not. There on the cross, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. He went all the way for us. And in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, If any man comes after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. It is very clear that the New Testament is calling for a very calculated, very determined discipleship. Now notice that along with their condemnation, Jesus issues a warning. Either repent and change or I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. They had a lukewarm, complacent faith that was nauseating to Jesus Christ. Now imagine Jesus saying to you that when he thinks about your life or my life, if he were to say to us, your life makes me sick. You nauseate me. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Just imagine Jesus saying that to you. You know, it's easy to get complacent in life about various things and some things that doesn't really matter. I, I read a joke again this week and it kind of made me think of Jerry Taylor going home to be with the Lord. Here was this man and his wife. They were always counting calories and watching their diet and the wife was, she was a drill sergeant in the home with all of that, the exercise and diet. And one day this couple was killed in an airplane accident. They got to heaven. St. Peter takes him around and he sees all the golf courses and St. Peter says, yeah, you can play on all those. No green fees after all. This is heaven. Shows them a big banquet. You can eat anything you want, anytime you want. And the man says, well, uh, where's the fat-free section? And he says, what are you talking about? You don't have to count calories or worry about cholesterol or all that stuff up here. This is heaven. man looks over at his wife and says, hmm. You and your brand muffins. We could have been here 10 years ago. <laughs> Some things it doesn't matter if we're complacent about. But he's saying we dare not be complacent about the things of the Lord. And yet that's exactly where the church at Laodicea was. They were complacent. They were lukewarm. Not only that, but in verse 17, he points out that they're prideful, they're self-sufficient. 
Look at what they say of themselves in 17. He says, you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. They were self-sufficient. A lot of people will never make it to heaven because, quite frankly, they don't believe they're sinners. They don't see the need. They don't see the need of being forgiven of anything. In fact, you ask them about their life, they feel like they, they've lived a quite worthy life. God ought to be happy with their life. Talk to them about sin, they're offended by that. Talk to them about a need of a Savior, they don't really want to hear about that. They remind me of the parable Jesus told of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee who went into the temple and the scripture says he prayed thus to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. Because I do this and I do that and I do this. The publican, on the other hand, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat on his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the guy who went down to his house justified. A lot of people are so full of pride. They just think they don't need anything from God. God send me to hell? No way. Now what a shock for them to hear that Jesus saw them as being poor. Not only poor, but naked. Again, they didn't see it. I think of the story of Hans Christian Andersen. The emperor has no clothes. You remember that story? How those swindlers come to town and they, they convince the emperor that they can weave for him the most beautiful garments and the most beautiful robe he could ever wear. And if, uh, if somebody can't notice the garments and how beautiful they are, it's only because that's a person who's not worthy or fit for their office. The emperor buys into it. Swindlers bring in these looms. They pretend to weave these imaginary garments. And they pretend to put them on him. And, and then they parade him out. And he's parading around naked. And, and, and he thinks he, he's been convinced that he's got on this beautiful robe. And, and the mob's watching the, uh, all the people out there. And they can't believe this guy's waltzing around naked. And, and, and finally a child says, well, he's naked. The emperor has no clothes. That's how they were at Laodicea. This beautiful, prosperous, fabulous wool industry that they had. And all the clothing that they produced. And yet they didn't see that they were spiritually naked. And they didn't see that they were blind. Here they had this eye powder and make into a paste and apply to the eyes. And, and all over the ancient world back then, certain eye diseases and ailments, you, they, it was known that, hey, go to Laodicea or get some of that powder from Laodicea and your eyes can get better. They had that. And yet they were spiritually blind. They were blinded by the world. It's the way some people are today. They come to church, blind to their true condition. 
enamored with the world. They're doing this and that. They're making sure their kids are doing this and that. They're investing all their time and energy and money in the things of the world and then coming to church just as blind as they can be to their condition. They're satisfied with that. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his very own soul? Again, I like what Dr. James Merritt writes about this. He, he writes just a little story, a little fable about how you might imagine a, a modern day Laodicean congregation. Listen to what he says about it. It was a church that was lukewarm about its service. Sunday school teachers studied their lessons on Saturday night, spent 30 minutes on their lesson, then went in their Sunday school class the next day, 15 minutes late, with a yawn on their face and bags under their eyes. In fact, the church was lucky to have Sunday school teachers to begin with because people felt they had more important things to do than study the Bible and teach the Word of God or to serve God in any capacity for that matter. The teachers they did have did not know who was saved. They didn't know who was lost. Quite frankly, they really didn't care. Everybody would come to church on Sunday night for an ice cream social. But on Tuesday night visitation, everybody could find something else to do. Even if just another church meeting of some sort, just anything to keep them from going out on visitation. They were lukewarm about the scriptures. There was no real hunger to study the word of God. They did not enjoy preaching of the word of God. In fact, they only endured it. They were lukewarm about their sacrifice. They would sing sweet hour of prayer, but never show up for a prayer meeting. They would sing, oh, how I love Jesus. And then when the offering plate was passed, they didn't even love Jesus 10 cents out of every dollar. Then they were lukewarm about their soul winning. It was not that they were against people being saved. As a matter of fact, it was all right with them if people did get saved. But they just weren't excited about it, quite frankly, one way or the other. They were not concerned whether or not their neighbors were lost. They really didn't care if people were walking the aisles or if the baptismal waters were ever being stirred. As a matter of fact, if they had a choice between getting out of church early or on time at noon or... Seeing God do a work in the invitation time, people get saved and stay longer. They'd much rather get out at noon. Jesus looked at a church like that, the church at Laodicea. And he said, you make me sick to my stomach. You nauseate me. That's powerful, isn't it, folks? Some of the strongest words of judgment you'll find anywhere, anywhere in the Word of God, Old or New Testament. Strong words. Now notice his counsel beginning in verse 18. He said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Folks, what's the wonderful thing here? The wonderful thing here is even though in their church life even though in their own hearts they had gone astray, 
grown lukewarm, Jesus still loved them. And he loved them enough to give them words of correction. He wants them to see their lives and their heart the way he sees them. After all, God sees us perfectly. And he points out here, it's going to do nobody any good whatsoever if we see our lives one way and God sees our lives some other way that's not the same. That won't be profitable to us at all. And so he challenges them with a spiritual reality that matches up with their physical reality there at Laodicea. And so he tells them that what they needed to do was obtain true riches. It's like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. We need to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break in and steal. How many times do we go about in life and we're so concerned about the wealth and the riches of this world and the Bible is telling us all of that one of these days is going to fade away. In fact, we're seeing some of that fade away now, aren't we? You've been checking your stocks? They're down 4% in one week, right? The European Union last week declared, one day last week, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday of last week, they declared that they are now officially recognizing they have gone back into recession. 17% of our economy is tied to them. I mean, just think about how God is shaking all the foundations of the world and things that people today trust in. I was reading this last week, Isaiah 5. God was talking about Judah and Israel in Isaiah 5. And he said, because you've trusted so much in your money and possessions, at the point of your trust, your money and possessions, I'm going to blow on it and I'm going to carry it all away. That's powerful, isn't it? And so what do we need to do? We need to make sure that we are redeeming the time and seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and we're investing in eternal treasure and not simply earthly temporal things. Well, also he told them to obtain white garments. White garments in the Bible stand for the righteousness, true righteousness before God. You remember that guy in Matthew 22 who went to a wedding banquet and he did not have on the proper garment and so he was not allowed to stay. Well, they were naked at Laodicea. Their lives were clothed with the wrong things. And if they continue down that path, they're going to stand before God one day at the great white throne judgment, totally ashamed and naked. And so what Jesus is offering them here is real clothes. In Christ, our nakedness and shame can be taken away. And then instead of standing at the great white throne for unbelievers, we stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ at the Bema Seat of Christ. He's offering them something vastly different and vastly better. 
And then he wants them to obtain true sight. If they only will, Jesus will give them sight into things that really matter. They can have their spiritual eyes opened. Do your eyes need to be opened today to what really matters? Do you see the things of the world but have no eyes for the things of God? Again, in each of these cases, there was a cheap substitute that they had settled for. And Jesus wants them to obtain instead the real reality behind it. Don't walk about this life and this earth with 20-20 vision for the things of the world. But at the same time you're blind to the things of God. Now again what I love about this challenge verse 19 Jesus still loved them he said those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and eat with him and he with me Jesus loved them why does Jesus discipline us because he loves us In fact, Hebrews 12 says if we're without God's discipline, it's because we don't belong to Him. You don't discipline other people's kids, you discipline your own. If you're without, if God never takes you to the woodshed over sin and apathy and complacency or wrongdoing in your life, if God never takes you to the woodshed, you never feel convicted, you never change, guess what? It's because you don't belong to God. Because those who belong to God, God's going to get after you. God's going to discipline you. And he does that because he loves you. It's evidence of his love. And then he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door. You've seen the painting here of Christ standing in a garden at a beautiful wooden door. And in that painting, I think it faithfully describes what's being portrayed here. There's no handle on the outside. Christ isn't just going to ram himself in. He's a perfect gentleman. He says, if you will open the door, I will come in and dine with you. And the Greek word here refers to the best meal of the day the dinner time meal at the end of the day after they had worked in the fields come in uh, in the Middle East they would just kind of lay back and have this big feast and they might they might eat together and fellowship together two three four hours they would just have sometimes long gatherings in the evening and they considered it the best time of the day the best meal of the day And Christ is saying, that's what I will offer to you if you'll listen. The best. The best. He says, I stand at the door and I knock. I stand at the door and knock. Why does he stand at the door uh, of a church wanting entry? Why does he stand at the door of a life wanting entry? Why does he want to do business with us? Because... He loves us. In 1985, a group of Southern Baptists from Eastside Baptist Church in Marietta, Georgia took a mission trip to Worcester, Massachusetts. 
On that mission trip was a lady by the name of Bo. I made a phone call this week to verify this story. Told the story in the early service. John and Joyce Ashball. John Ashball came up to me and he said, That's a powerful story. When we lived in Georgia, when we lived in that area, we knew that lady. We heard that story. We knew her. Bo and her church group from Eastside Baptist Church, Marietta, Georgia, went up on a mission trip to Worcester, Massachusetts. They got to work one day. But now, before going on that mission trip, Bo, godly lady, just bathed that trip in prayer. Kept praying, kept praying, kept. And she couldn't get away from this name laid on her heart. She didn't, she'd never had anything happen like that in her life. This name, John Nesbitt, kept coming to her mind. She's like, I don't know a John Nesbitt. She would pray and pray and pray and pray. And pray. Finally, she took her Bible. She wrote in the flyleaf of her Bible the date before they ever left on the mission trip and the name John Nesbitt. Was on the job site. Car kept driving round and round and round the job site. Finally, a man got out, walked over to her in the group and said, Hello, I, I'm lost. I'm trying to find such and such location. Can you help me? And Bo said, Sir, sir I'm sorry we can't. We're from Georgia. Up here on a mission trip with our church. And we don't know anything about the area. And he said, oh, I, I see you're some of those Christians. And she said, yes. He said, well, my wife's a Christian. I'm not. But she's always telling me, she's praying for me, she wants me to be saved. He said, by the way, my name is Jack. And I noticed your name's Bo. That's kind of a funny name for a lady. And she said, oh, that's not my real name. That's my nickname. He said, well, I understand that. Jack's not my real name either. My name's John Nesbitt, and I'm here from England. Well, Bo about had a stroke. <laughs> she said, can I share something with you? She opened the flyleaf of her Bible, and she said, sir, I've been praying about this trip. She said, I, I, what, what do you read there? And he read his name with the date that she'd written his name in her Bible. She said, all I can say is God must love you a whole lot, have a plan for your life because you've come all the way across the pond from England and me from Marietta, Georgia to meet up together in Worcester, Massachusetts. Can I share the gospel with you? Well, he about had a stroke too. And that day she was able to lead him to faith in Christ. Had he explained something like that? Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks because he loves you. And he stands at a church fellowship and knocks wanting entry because he loves us. And great is his love. Would you bow with me in prayer please? Today, would you have to admit that you're on a fence between the world and God? You want church in one sense. You want to have church as a part of your life, part of your kids' lives. 
But you really don't want to go overboard with this Jesus thing. In fact, you'd like a dose of religion, but you don't want you certainly don't want it to interrupt or inconvenience your life. You just don't want it to get in the way of anything. If that's you, I want you to hear what Jesus says to you. Jesus says you make him sick to his stomach. Folks, we can have everything and yet be poor. You'll never truly be happy until, like Paul in life, you're able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Ask God to help you see yourself as he sees you. Are you brave enough to do that this morning? Ask him to light a fire for Jesus in your soul that nothing in this world could extinguish it. How long are you going to play Christianity or church? Don't play with the eternal things of God. That's dangerous. If you've never come to Christ, how long... How long are you going to leave him on the outside seeking entry? You have nothing to gain by procrastinating and potentially everything to lose. Don't gamble with your soul. Don't gamble with eternity. Father, I pray for that one this morning who needs to be saved. Pray that you would convict them and be knocking on their heart's door. That they could not turn you away. That they would open to you and find peace and joy and fellowship with you that perhaps they've only dreamed of. Lord, for the Christian this morning, who knows in the past they've made that decision, but quite frankly they've grown lukewarm. They've gotten busy in life and distant from you. It's, it's been a slow process. They haven't meant for it to happen, but they've grown lukewarm. And they, re, they need renewal and revival in their hearts today. It's like Hosea said, it's time to plow up the fallow ground and sow seeds of righteousness. As Paul said to Timothy, they need to fan into flames the gift of God within them. Stir them to do that. Lord, do business with your people. May we be a people that will be a bright, shining light for you in a dark world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.